Yeah, the problem with the real is that again, it's not as simple as it may appear. Yeah. I can give a simple definition, but as it is with all simple definitions, it means nothing. Mm -hmm. It would be that which resists symbolization. But again, this does not mean that there is some positive entity which resists symbolization, because basically nothing resists symbolization. Symbolization has a kind of in inherent obstacle, is as it were, caught in its own loop. So, then I would immediately have to go into different modalities of the real, and the big message, of course, would have been that the Lacanian real is not this big, traumatic real as some horrible thing which is too strong for us to confront. Alright. Alright, this is Lost Futures, the Mark Fisher Podcast, Season 2, Capitalist Realism. I'm Marlo. And I'm Steven, and this time we're discussing Chapter 3, Capitalism and the Real. So we're gonna get to the real part of Capitalist Realism <laughs> in this chapter. Uh, yep. Alright, so and it starts out with him distinguishing himself from another term called capitalist realism. Him bringing up a thing you never heard of. <laughs> capitalist realism. Yeah, so uh, basically in uh, the 1960s, there was like a sub-movement of the pop art scene in, yeah, I assume West Germany. Yeah, West Germany. Um that did uh, projects they called capitalist realism as a direct inversion of the 1930s through 50s art movement in uh, the Soviet Union called socialist realism. Socialist realism is marked by the philosophy that art should promote the socialist project. Essentially, it was kind of a Stalin-era reaction to a lot of the avant-garde stuff from, you know, closer to the revolution. It's basically, like, if you see pictures of Stalin with, like, school children. Yeah, yeah, there's, like, hagiographic paintings, um, like, very romantic workers, you know, literally being bathed in the light, radiating from a golden hammer and sickle in the sky kind of stuff. Uh, that is socialist realism, capitalist realism in this context, was basically a pop art thing about advertising, uh, is my understanding. Well, and then in the 80s, this other guy, Michael Shudson, uh, wrote Advertising the Uneasy Persuasion, which is looking at advertising in this way that... that yeah presented it as capitalist realism yeah, it's a very cheeky uh sort of way of you know saying like oh we're just as propagandistic as the soviet union but our propaganda is advertising and consumerism and blah 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 yeah it it is looking at consumerist society specifically yeah in a very you know liberal framework of the Soviet Union is this, like, you know, society of dazzled citizens who are being led by this, you know, personality cult, ideology cult. Brainwashing and, kind and of. And ain't it the same with us because we are slaves to consumer society. Yeah. So Fisher kind of uses this as a jumping off point to distinguish a thing about his capitalist realism. He says capitalist realism as I understand it, cannot be confined to art 
or to the quasi-propagandistic way in, in which advertising functions. It is more like a pervasive atmosphere, conditioning not only the production of culture, but also the regulation of work and education and acting as a kind of invisible barrier constraining thought and action. So, yeah, I mean, I think with atmosphere, I sort of think of the phrase, um, you know, fish doesn't know it's wet, that this is uh, such a pervasive thing, it's very existence is at once all around us, but hidden from us. Uh, and it sort of takes off of a lot of what the last chapter was talking about with how capitalism unlike our notions of totalitarian socialism or fascism doesn't need to actively make a positive case for itself and in fact instead presenting itself as not even a positive thing but just the neutral way things are is the main way that capitalism justifies yeah he says it here in the second paragraph uh a moral critique of capitalism emphasizing the ways in which it leads to suffering only reinforces capitalist realism. Poverty, famine, and war can be presented as an inevitable part of reality, while the hope that these forms of suffering could be eliminated easily painted as naive utopianism. And you, I think a lot about this in terms of uh, in America, the Bernie Sanders campaign, Bernie Sanders campaign was considered naive utopianism. Any attempt at like even uttering the word socialism was presented in this, uh, well, the problems can't be fixed or the right, reforms, mean, uh, even reforms to the system would destroy the system. Yeah, everyone gets a pony, blah, blah, blah. Also, you know, as we go into this chapter, he's building this sort of psychoanalytic case about viewing capitalism as sort of this suppressed thing, kind of like the thing that we're, that's hidden from us, but is at once ever present in everything around us. He distinguishes the natural from the ideological. And, right. and that becomes a running theme throughout this chapter. The natural seems in part to be in opposition to or like presented as outside of the ideological. Yeah, I mean, he, he mentions Foucault, he mentions Brecht and Badu, and Badu as all being people who kind of identified the leftist project with attacking that which gets presented as the natural order of things, sort of similar to the description by some philosopher of Marx. Well, the Marxist notion of attacking all that, you know, radically attacking all that is or whatever, however that's phrased, but also the masters of suspicion, which is uh, Marx, Nietzsche, and Freud as these people who specifically attack this notion of the conscious world as the objective world. And it's also interesting because this book has a reputation as being sort of pessimistic or not really giving any prescriptive thing and just this 
like notional idea that we're all doomed or whatever. But he, he's starting to build kind of a praxis case here where he's saying, no, actually, okay, so step one is to think about the ways what things are presented as the natural order of things and be prepared to attack that. Right. Don't accept the naturalization that capitalism imposes on parts of your life. Yes. He kind of summarizes this with Badiou um, quoting, Modernization, Badiou uh, bitterly observes, is the name for a strict and servile definition of the possible. These reforms invariably aim at making impossible what used to be practicable for, for the largest number and making profitable for the dominant oligarchy what did not used to be so. And what that basically says is the things that were pre are presented as impossible now were at one time like easy, easy to imagine in the past and you know what was considered impossible in the past is now considered uh impossible right yeah yeah i mean we're constantly presented contingencies as if they're like he, he says it here what could have been unthinkable only a decade earlier could scarcely have been imagined in 1975 so like this kind of out of jointness with time right well, yeah, and I mean, just, yeah, we're presented at these things as if they're absolutes when they're, in fact, contingent. Uh, contingent on our time, contingent on decisions that have been made. Social conditions. Yes. So, now we're going full steam ahead into psychoanalysis land, and he briefly, uh identifies Zizek and Lacan as, you know, sort of the forerunners of what he's about to do because he's about to use Lacan in a leftist way. And then he mentions Elenka Zupanchik, who is another Hegelian Lacanian from Slovenia. Who's yeah. not Zizek. She is most famous right now for writing the 2017 book what is sex? Uh, she and Zizek are good friends. They both teach in the same uh, Slovenian university, and they both come from the same school of thought, and they both like to talk about language and uh, suppression, repression. Ideology. But, and ideology. She specifically attacks this idea that these presentation of the natural world through scientific, geological, biological frameworks are in fact, actually they are mediated by any ideological framework. And she says it here in her quote, uh, when she discusses the reality principle, the reality principle being a reference to the pleasure principle, which is the tendency of people to seek pleasure and avoid pain. And that comes from it's Freud. A, yeah, it's a 
baseline Freudian. And she says here, uh, the reality principle is not some kind of natural way associated with how things are. The reality principle itself is ideologically mediated. One could even claim that it constitutes the highest form of ideology, the ideology that presents itself as empirical fact or biological, economic, etc. necessity and that we tend to perceive as non-ideological. It is precisely here that we should be most alert to the functioning of ideology. I'm less familiar with the intricacies of her work than Zizek, but, you know, to give a kind of basic uh, header point on what a lot of Zizek's work is concerned with is basically doing a Freudian psychoanalysis on society in the same way that Freud interprets dreams and says, look at this thing, this is saying this thing, but it's actually suppressing this other thing. And Zizek likes doing that specifically with the Marxist notion of ideology uh, as this framework for justifying the world. And he kind of looks at ideology in this Freudian way of saying, or Lacanian, and saying, you know, what is being suppressed is actually the thing that is ever present around us. Mm -hmm. And, you know, our capitalism is so effusive, is so everywhere in our society that we call it natural. We don't even think of it as capitalism. It's right. Just, is the way we get food is obviously we buy food from a store uh, and so forth. Yeah, and I think about this in terms of a lot of arguments for and against socialism versus capitalism. A lot of times the capitalist side turns to mathematics, turns to biology they look into nature and say oh oh the lobster you know and mm -hmm. see you can see competition everywhere and because there's competition in nature they say you know greed is natural right. competition is natural right but i think it yeah but i mean and as this rest of this chapter is going to go you know the teaser i mean mental illness is medicinal science Mm -hmm. It isn't a social condition. It isn't a contingent social order. It's a natural thing that must be understood through an apolitical science. And science is not political. And in fact, you know, if your enemies are politicizing science, you attack them for daring to make science. Political. Yeah, and to go back to Foucault, a lot of his work is directly attacking this idea of naturalized uh, science yes. and this idea of naturalized form of, of, of penal colony, sexuality, and the categorizations that we have around that. Right. Um, so, so we're going to take a little break here and... Surface temperature has soared to its highest level ever recorded surpassing record levels of heat measured just one day earlier and the day before that. This week's string of record-shattering hottest days came as climate scientists warned last month was the hottest June ever recorded, with 2023 on track to become the hottest year in human history. 
Meanwhile, a new report in the journal Nature Communications warns changing weather patterns and extreme heat due to the climate crisis will exacerbate the global food crisis with lower crop yields anticipated in the near future. All of this has added new urgency for broad government action to address the climate crisis, but much of it has been thwarted by fossil fuel lobbyists, which we'll talk more about in a minute with The Guardian reporter Oliver Millman. But we begin with author-environmentalist Bill McKibben, co-founder of 350.org and founder of the organization Third Act, whose new Substack piece is headlined— All right. So, uh, now he's getting into Lacan real— capital R versus real lowercase r. So, at the top of the episode, we had Zizek say, I can give you a simple definition of the real, but that would be useless. So now we're going to give you a simple definition of the real. So it's actually, yeah, somewhat ironically, it is the Zizek example. Uh, or what he said as an example, as a simple definition. It's also the basic, if you read a Lacan explainer definition, the real is an unrepresentable X, a traumatic void that can only be glimpsed at in the fractures and inconsistencies of the field of apparent reality. Also, he says, uh, the real is what any reality must suppress. So essentially, I mean, in like Lacan's, framework first of all you start with a newly born baby and this baby doesn't have language this baby doesn't have a pre-existent set of symbols of oh a circle looks like this a square looks like this these are where one object ends and the other object begins a baby is just a little vessel of sensory inputs and it's all very confusing and the baby cries quite a bit uh, and then uh, we eventually learn images and uh, speech and words, and we use all that to mediate our reality through these presets of references that we then kind of build our thing in. But underneath all that is just that actual unmediated real that we never actually directly interact with, except in Lacan's world in moments of great trauma and also sometimes uh, very heavy LSDs. <laughs> and so that's kind of what the real is in that you know, basic elementary sense, as much as that is accurate and can make sense. And so we're using it kind of here, really looking at the thing that must be suppressed. So... You know, in this sense of politics of science, environmentalism, uh, you have the real, which for capitalism is the notion that climate change will happen as a necessary outcome of capitalism's ever-growing need for expansion, and there's no way for capitalism to solve that problem, and it will cause the destruction of the world in which capitalism relies on not being destroyed in order to have a society and have capitalists. But you can also think of it sort of like knowledge of your death. I mean, we all understand we're going to die. You know, uh, death is forever. What difference in the grand scheme of things does it make if you kill yourself tomorrow versus if you die 60 years from now? But most of us 
choose not to kill ourselves tomorrow. And so we kind of act as if we're ignoring that we're going to die. Yeah, you're deferring from it. You're making up. Right. And so capital, and, you know, you get into a lot of Freudian Lacanian psychology, a lot of stuff. You know, they see a lot of importance in our efforts to suppress that. And a lot of pathologies and such arise from that. And dream interpretations arise from that and that framework. So, and, and how does environmental catastrophe work into his logic of what the real is? Because here he says... Well, environment- I want to real quick uh, point out that he has another praxis point, which is one strategy against capitalist realism could involve invoking the reals underlying the reality that capitalism presents. So again, this is very much meant to be a strategic... Uh, argument. Right. And one of the reels that has been attacked already for a number of years is environmental catastrophe and the effects of climate change. So, I mean, yeah, nothing I really said about, you know, global warming being an inevitable result. That's probably nothing that anyone listening to this hasn't heard before. We're very used to the fight that environmentalists have but also to get back he he does kind of say about how you know in in much the same way of the suppression we get from capitalism this attempt at deferral in the form of you know green products electric cars uh you can you know buy this product to reduce your carbon footprint that sort of thing sort of capitalism's attempts at this suppression But this is being attacked. This is being attacked by environmentalists and the like. And he sort of suggests we should actually look for new territories. Right. You touched on it like green capitalism, which I think is sort of this idea. And all of you are probably familiar with it. It's electric cars. The you buy this product, you're actually helping the environment you're reducing your waste, your carbon footprint is lessened if you just buy these products. And all of that is to say that capitalism caused it. And similar to last chapter, capitalism is trying to do more capitalism to basically put a a band-aid on a bleeding wound. Yeah, or, I mean, because there's literally nothing else. There's nothing else. There's no other solution it can come up with. There is no alternative. Outside of itself. And by attacking that and saying, well, okay, we need an alternative that exposes a weakness, not even to capitalism, but to capitalist realism, to this notion of the natural order of things, because how can it be the natural order of order of things if it's destroying nature? Yeah, my favorite example of this is when I'm driving down the New Jersey Turnpike and I'm driving past the oil refineries near Elizabeth, New Jersey. If you've ever been there, uh, or watch The Sopranos, or watch The Sopranos, uh, you'll know that on the side of the the giant oil drums, it says basically like. We're dedicated to 20% reduced carbon emissions because we have used uh, green 
technologies to help reduce our emissions. And that's right. on the oil, literal oil drum. Right. And yeah, so it is also a funny time capsule because these are, in fact, from the intro of The Sopranos. Tony drives past these large drums that say drive safely on the side. 20 years later, they now talk about green energy. And the Twin Towers are showing. Yes, many things changed from the season one intro of The Sopranos in the last 20 years. Among them, the Twin Towers are no longer there. <laughs> and the drive safely drums now have this thing about the environment. So if you ever wondered, you know, what would 2023 Sopranos be like? Tony would have an iPad. The <laughs> World Trade Center's towers would not be there. Oh, Sylvia would be doing something with like an OnlyFans, like Andrew Tate scan. <laughs> uh, and also the drive safely drums in the intro would have some rambling message about green energy. Hey, I don't think it's actually rambling. I think that was just me being rambling. Well, whatever. Anyway, I'm sure it's a very short and sweet uh, statement about their dedication to green energy and <laughs> at the Elizabeth New Jersey oil refinery. <laughs> yeah, so... And well, fortunately, there is a lot of politicization around climate change. There already has been now in the realm. Yeah, he's introducing the environment as an idea that is probably approachable by his audience, specifically because we're used to political debates about the environment. And he's almost then saying, you kind of don't need me to tell you this. But what you do need to tell me to tell you is something else. Right. I, I kind of hover around this idea because, you know, science, now you have like pro-ecological disaster, climate change science, and then you have the opposite, which is like, you know, oil lobbyists that uh, fun right. sciences that counter climate change. Yeah, I mean, to be clear, within academia, I mean, you can It's say pretty what, unified. Yeah, well, you could say what you will about the way attempts are made to muddy the public conversation. Right, like, but what I'm saying is that this is a process that capital uses to yeah. reinforce its I mean, I mean uh, conversely, it's almost because those counter sciences are like not really a part of science. It is on that basis that the, you know, envi liberal environmentalist will accuse his opponent of politicizing science, which is sort of in a weird way, although Fisher likes the pro environmentalist standpoint is what he's attacking because no, actually you guys are all politicizing science. You should embrace that because your politics are the right ones and you should win. So this kind of methodology is like very, at least implicitly. I mean, he briefly mentions Deleuze and Guattari, uh, but it has this sort of anti-Oedipus notion of this uh, like, you know, schizophrenic anti-capitalism, as they would call it, of 
looking at things and say in the same way that a schizophrenic might say, uh, this, you know, random person on the street is a God. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I'm elevating this person from just the territory of guy on the street to the divine, to the human condition, to nature, to this, um, Deleuze and Guattari have this notion of you should think about politics that way because we have this territory of what we consider political of oh, taxes should be this, this should be that, that should be that. But then we have this diminishing field of that territory where something gets plucked up and says, oh, well, the objective economics says that we need to do this. Mm -hmm. And now it's no longer in the territory of politics. And they're saying we need to not only, first of all, recapture that back into the territory of politics. We need to go further and, you know, look at science, look at medicine and say, actually, medicine is political. Yep. Actually, you know, these things that we think of. These bureaucratic structures and yeah, so your job. Right. These are political notions. You know, this is just how it is. There's no fight to be had for it. No fight over these things. And so Fisher's starting that argument with science and the environment. And now he's saying you should look specifically at mental at health, mental health and bureaucracy. And he also is giving this very specific prescriptive basis of the attack where he's saying attack the notion of the natural attack you know environmentalism works because capitalist realism says capitalism is the natural order and environmentalism says capitalism is literally destroying the natural order and so those two things can't both be true and if environmentalism can prove its case then capitalist realism has failed on that notion. And he's now saying we should look at mental health and we should make that argument. We should look at uh, bureaucracy and we should make that argument. Right. So um, mental health is political. First, he points to depression. Depression is a huge topic for him. It was a huge topic for him in our last season, uh, Ghosts of My Life, which dealt directly with depression. And that book, in a lot of ways, expands on uh, yeah, his uh, arguments, his arguments here, it's kind of a big deal, uh, for Fisher and he wants to make the case and he makes the case repeatedly through this book and through that book that depression is not natural and it is treated as natural and that the people that tell you that, oh, you're just sad and you're depressed and that's just how it is are lying to you and that that is a political decision that was made by politicians who decided to take something from you. And that this naturalization of depression is one of the great fights that he sees that the left should recapture and say, no, this isn't natural. This isn't the way it should be. Young people should not be all depressed. Young people should not be on SSRIs. Young people should not be on uh, ADHD medication. They should be more free to live their life than they their parents were. And they're not. And they're depressed. Yeah, this is a 
just Russian roulette, luck of the draw. Oh, you have these certain genes that causes your brain to do these things with the chemicals in the brain and all that stuff. We have completely removed that from the social sphere and also the political sphere. We've desocialized the problem. It's not an issue of social conditions. It's instead an issue of individual brain chemistry. I don't want to really get too into that because it's like all in the next chapter. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, um, but, you know, he... But he does use the term, he does use the term here, the privatization of stress. Yeah. It is a big topic that he uses to say, there are capitalists out there who tell you that it is your fault and that your life is made worse because of decisions that you made and that it is privatized. Or because of your brain chemistry. Or because of... You know, the Great Depression was a social phenomenon. It was, you know, when the economy tanked. And, you know, there was a certain social use of the word depression. And now the way we use depression in our present day is about, you know, you have the cold, you have cancer, you have depression. It's this not a social factor. It's an individualized, privatized thing that is your responsibility, you know, in taking care of yourself and your body to take care of. Uh, It is not something that society ought be expected to participate in. It's not something that society caused. It's just a thing that happens. And I think one of his larger points also is that the fact that you then have to take care of yourself that much more puts on additional strain, which leads to more depression. When you can't meet goals, when you can't find the things that you want because you have to take care of yourself, you can't care for others when you have to take care of yourself. And he gets into that a little bit with his reference to the selfish capitalist by Oliver James, where he cites this guy who he says has posited a correlation between rising rates of mental distress and the neoliberal mode of capitalism practiced in countries like Britain, the USA, and Australia. And he's kind of using that as a jumping off point. Oliver James is kind of taking a liberal position when it comes to this and, and mm-hmm. Fisher's identifying this as, yes, this is the right problem. However, I want this to be more politicized as a question. Yeah, I mean, Oliver James's thesis is can largely be summed up, and these are not using his words. These are using better words than he used because they're more precise, uh, but more or less summed up as he thinks everyone's sad about post-Fordism and thinks that there's a situation in which we could return to Fordism. Right. Which uh, is, is, which, is essentially what he, Oliver James argues. Which is what a lot of people read into Fisher. Sure. And they're wrong, and we're here to tell you why they're wrong. Because that's not Mark Fisher's position. Yeah, yeah, that's one way in which Fisher gets... Pigeonholed. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so then he makes an argument about bureaucracy that... You know, I I don't know. I mean, essentially saying that we were kind of promised this post-bureaucratic world with the efficiency of the markets. However, that hasn't happened, which should tell us that 
capitalist realism's ontology, business ontology is false, and that it's in fact causing the things. I, that's a, that's another topic we haven't brought up: business ontology, which is basically people that walk around identifying themselves within a right. business um, mindset. Well, I mean, it's a, it's a it's a market epistemology. It's the notion that like. To have a market-based or privatization-based approach to running things, be it healthcare, you know, in the United States, prisons, uh, schools, charter schools, what have you, that delivers better results at less of a cost. And this is often, you know, materially untrue and provably untrue, but that never seems to shake the notion at all. It's almost as if actually the privatization and the market way of running things is actually the end into itself it's not a stepping stone to deliver better results at lower costs um right and i think there is a link between these two key terms business ontology and the privatization of stress well yeah i mean well specifically for his critique of bureaucracy is the notion that, you know, part of that efficiency is diminished bureaucracy. Part of that promised efficiency is we're spending less money on oversight. We're spending less money on, like, having eight different offices to do different things. We're streamlining because we have to streamline because the market demands we streamline. And if I spend a bunch of my money on bureaucracy and my competitor is not spend a bunch of money on bureaucracy the competitor's cost will be lower i'll be driven out of this. and governments don't have to worry about competitors therefore capitalist realism promises us that increased neoliberalism the diminished role of the government will necessarily diminish bureaucracy fisher says this is obviously untrue uh and in the same sort of way the real, in this case, being suppressed is the notion that capitalism is as inefficient, as petty controlling, as whatever, as that which they accuse their enemies of. Yeah, which is where he talks about the Stalinist past. Right, exactly. And I have personally always seen this kind of use of Stalinism, which is not actual Stalinism, but this use of Stalinism as really a superego of capitalism, mm -hmm. um, that it kind of becomes this big other that we must constantly attack while at the same time doing the thing that we then are saying that we're attacking. Yeah. Anyway, that's basically the chapter. He kind of well, 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 he, he wraps it up with a very a, personal moment. Yeah, he wraps it up by saying the reason I'm focusing on these things is because I'm a teacher and hyper present in the education. Yeah, system. but it's it. This is like one of the more more humanizing moments of this book. Mm. It's to say, you know, there is a person behind this. He experiences it in school. He works as a teacher, and he says. I look at my kids, I look at the bureaucracy, I look at the work that I'm forced to do, and these are the conclusions that I've come to. It's kind of like, a, mm -hmm. it reminds me of a report on postmodernism. Like, it, it more reminds me of, like, I've experienced all this, now I'm reporting back to you. Yeah. And I think that lends 
some authority to his argument. It also gives you kind of a, the first time really that you get a, a personal eye here. In part, I have chosen to focus on mental health problems and bureaucracy because they both feature heavily in an area of culture which has become increasingly dominated by the imperatives of capitalist realism, education. Through most of the current decade, I have worked as a lecturer in the Further Education College, and in what follows, I will draw extensively on my experiences there. Further Education Colleges are community colleges in England. Right, they're... It's the equivalent of a community college. It's not like a charter school. It's, no, it's, it's, it's 13th grade. Yeah. It's, it's a community college. It's, it's people that it's sort a, of didn't get into the Ivy Leagues. Yeah, and, or you're looking to save some money, so you do, do a two-year associates at a community college, and then you do two years at another college. Is also a typical way of doing things. You know, it's a working-class thing. I mean, they exist in the States everywhere. Uh, they serve a purpose. And and what he's saying here is that ever since these colleges were removed from local authority control or like government kind of oversight, right, that they have become the subject of market pressures and government-imposed targets. Yeah, he's going to get into it uh, about uh, using the sort of self-managerial ethos and translating that to education and the absurdities that come to that. But yeah, anyway. Yeah, I, I think that you can, if you've ever worked in an office, you can see this. If you worked yourself as a teacher, you can probably well, I mean, see this yeah, in or, your everyday. Or like in the gig economy, it's, it's very much the self-managerial ethos. As it existed in 2009, which is kind of an interesting, because it's like evolved in different ways since then. But yeah, I'll get more into it in that one chapter where he has an entire paragraph about uh, the step-by-step -step of what he does to work a lesson plan. Yep. Anyway. Well, well that was know. the real. 